Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. The COVID-19 pandemic has revealed critical ambiguities in state law, especially in regard to the ownership and responsibility of public health orders. Governors often relied on general statutory power to take necessary action in response to COVID's threats. Yet some courts found this statutory authority was so vague that it violated the separation of powers and they set aside vital public health orders. Meanwhile, some state legislatures attempted to terminate emergency declarations by joint resolution, which was unconstitutional according to one state Supreme Court. In this episode, we are joined by Professor Rob Gatter, the director of the Center for Health Law Studies and an expert in public health law. Professor Gatter is also currently serving as a reporter on a project of the Uniform Law Commission to draft a model state law addressing such ambiguities. I'm Jessica Sacconi, Director of Communications, and this is the final installment of this year's special Health Law Live series, the Slew Law Summations podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Rob. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for featuring this. Oh, sure. Um, So we often hear about separation of powers on a federal level, but what about the state level? How does separation of powers play out on that level? Yeah, so the separation of powers is not just a, a single doctrine, but there are several doctrines that can fall under it. And there's a few that may ring a bell with some lawyers back from their law school days that uh, doesn't often come up. But so, for example, at the at the head of this, you, you talked about um, governors who were relying on the word necessary inside of one or another public health or emergency management statute to authorize the orders that the governor was writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the question when an, um, the the granting of authority by the legislature through a statute to the executive branch, whether directly to the governor or to an agency, where that where there's an ambiguity in there, there's a risk mm-hmm. that the legislature is um, is delegating outside of the legislative branch legislative authority that the state constitution says vests exclusively in the legislative branch. So the doctrine that comes up uh, under separation of powers is the non-delegation doctrine. Mm -hmm. The non-delegation doctrine says exactly that. Where a a constitution, federal or state, vests all legislative authority in the legislative branch, then generally it's prohibited for the legislature Mm -hmm. to delegate that authority by statute to any other branch. Okay. And so the theory then, and there's an exception to it. The exception is where there is uh, some sort of intelligible principle or procedures that operate as a check to narrow the scope Mm -hmm. of the authority that's been delegated by the legislature to another branch, then it works. Um, Where the word just, where where the only thing it's said in an emergency statute is the governor hereby has the authority to take actions that are necessary in order to prevent the further spread of an infectious disease um, or to um, uh, or to address an emergency resulting from an infectious disease, mm-hmm. then it opens itself up to the potential argument that the word necessary mm-hmm. is a f- is is so ambiguous as to not provide an intelligible principle right. And yet it allows for a governor to write really 
sweeping orders that last for a long time. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, the argument is from some people who had standing and were not happy with these orders to say, that's essentially a series of legislative rules that instead of coming out of our elected officials in the legislature, are coming from the governor's office or from a state agency. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has carried some weight, not in every jurisdiction, not in every jurisdiction that's faced with exactly that word necessary, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it did carry weight in some jurisdictions, including, for example, in Wisconsin. Okay. So the necessary, you know, that, that vague word that kind of allows some interpretation, is that, is that something that's just in particular state rules or is it like just a blanket thing that, that we know, you know? It's quite common in emergency management statutes across Mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, what we're talking about aren't federal statutes. We're only talking about state statutes Mm -hmm. uh, because the pandemic here, for the most part, or the kinds of orders we're talking about were coming were happening at the state level, sometimes yeah. at the local level, but but um, not many were at the federal level. Right. The ones that we felt most often were at the state and local level. Mm-hmm. So um, most state statutes, whether they're talking about emergency management, let's say for flooding or for a wildfire mm-hmm. or an earthquake, mm-hmm. would often have the word necessary in it. This is also true of non-emergency public health statutes in states. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon for a state statute to say that the whatever the public health agency is in a particular state, or perhaps there's a um, chief public health officer or a secretary of health to, to uh, for that statute to say that here are the specific tasks and responsibilities of that agency. Uh, and with respect to say infectious diseases, here are their specific tasks, but to also include something more general saying, right. you have the ability to take actions that are necessary. Right. There are also some states that have public health emergency statutes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, like public health statutes that are non-emergent and like other non-public health emergency statutes, they very commonly include language like necessary. Right. And it makes some sense because mm-hmm. it's hard to know what's the nature of the emergency and yeah. you need to have somebody to be in charge of it. And the fear is that if you're very specific, you might have an emergency that doesn't fit into one of those enumerated powers or authorities. Mm-hmm. And then it's clear that the governor or a state agency that you'd like to respond to the emergency doesn't have the authority that they need. Mm-hmm. So, but there's this risk that if, if, a governor or a state agency is relying exclusively on that necessary language, that the ambiguity and the political and uh, frustration and the weariness of individuals with respect to a lengthy emergency results in this sort of challenge. Yeah. I was just going to say that, like, if we make it too tight of a language, then we're going to have an issue of, I mean, we cannot absolutely predict. I mean, no one, there are probably people who could have predicted that there was going to be a pandemic, but we wouldn't have known what we would, how we could protect against it. So, I mean, there's just no way. So I get that, but I I mean, there are, there are very clearly two sides to this for sure. I mean, two, I don't want to say opposing sides, but. Well, there, I'll give you an example. You know, Mm -hmm. we, uh, there was a lot of attention paid to public health emergencies after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, uh, you may remember that, that uh, on the heels of 9-11, there, was, uh, there were some anthrax attacks that happened in yeah. Washington, D.C. Um, that, uh, that resulted in the federal government wanting to have some um, improvement to really age-old 
um, state public health emergency powers. So in combination with uh, the CDC and, um, and an institute at Georgetown University, mm-hmm. a, uh, a proposed state statute was drafted pretty quickly and it was available before the end of 2001. And it defined a public health emergency and so forth. And it described the powers that a governor would have if the governor declares a public health emergency, but they were very focused on what made sense with respect to those anthrax scares, mm-hmm. the ability to um, respond to a bioterrorist attack, mm-hmm. the ability to identify people who may be infected and to quarantine them, to test them. But what it didn't do was account for, what if we had an infectious disease that where the, the effects of it lasted for a very long time? Mm-hmm. So many, I had probably 30 states adopted all or parts of that 2001 statute, and it's mm-hmm. on the books. And when that is combined with this necessary language, there were some states that said, okay, so we don't know what the word necessary means, but we can look to other related statutes to figure out what necessary means. Oh, look, it means quarantining, testing, and isolating people. So that's all you can do, Governor. So that's the risk you take if you're you're specific, Mm -hmm. and then you also have this broad necessary power, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. principles of statutory construction can kick in and suddenly the word necessary is limited to the powers that are necessary to carry out the specific authority. Right, right. So then we're left with realizing, okay, on the one hand, we can't just say necessary. On the other hand, when we start listing specific powers, uh, and we can't do that alone. When we do them in combination, we we have to realize that one will be used to to give definition to the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, what are some legal arguments that came from the state executive level actions during COVID nineteen that violated the separation of powers? So, um, th- this also happened the other way around. Mm. Again, as, as you know, the pandemic is ongoing, as mm-hmm, you and right. I are sitting here, there are still several states that are officially still under a declaration of public health emergency. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And there are still states that have uh, some orders in place, mm-hmm. not typically the mask orders and the school closure orders and the business closure orders that we, that were in the news as much, right. mm-hmm. but some orders that have to do with the ability, let's say, of nurses licensed in one state to be providing care in another state oh, that, yeah. that, that create flexibility. So that still exists. Mm-hmm. And it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. You imagine that a state declared a public health emergency <laughs> sometime in March of 2020. Right. Uh, it's been a while. And mm-hmm. so um, one, as, as individuals businesses and individuals in states became frustrated with when when is this going to be over or it's threatening my livelihood or it's yeah. so difficult for me to educate my kids at home while still keeping my job even virtually mm-hmm. um, the they were complaining and their elected legislators were listening to them and mm-hmm. several legislatures attempted to declare the public health emergency over right so under most statutes it's the governor who declares the existence of the emergency and it's and the governor unless there's some statutory limitation to it by time it would be the governor who who would renew it or terminate it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and some state legislators said well we disagree with the governor we think the governor should terminate it now 
Yeah. And, and the governor's unwilling to do so. So we are going to legislate it out of existence. Mm. And we'll do so <laughs> by passing a resolution in one chamber and by passing a resolution in the other chamber. And there it is. It's declared over. Mm-hmm. Well, that can be unconstitutional too. And if you sort of remember the schoolhouse rock, you know, making of a bill, most state constitutions <laughs> follow the same pattern right? It's not enough that a bill is passed in both chambers. It has to be presented to a governor. Mm -hmm. The governor has to either sign it or veto it, veto it expressly or veto it because too much time has passed. And then that triggers then a constitutional authority of the legislature to override if they have the votes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If that is the structure, and that is the structure of most state constitutions, then the only way for the legislature to act so as to have legal force is to have the governor's signature right. on the bill that's passed in both chambers mm-hmm. or for the governor to have vetoed and for there to be an override vote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A joint resolution is neither of those things. Mm-hmm. And um, so in Pennsylvania, this is what the state legislature tried to do. Mm-hmm. And the governor sued saying, that is not constitutional. That's mm-hmm. not a law. That's not binding. Right. And it went to the state Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court uh, said, by ma- there, there was a dissent, but by majority vote, that it was um, an unconstitutional legislative veto because it was never presented to the governor for signature or veto. Mm. Um, you might say, well, what if the, what if the vote had been by let's say the override threshold is two thirds. Let's Mm -hmm. say the initial joint resolution had been by two thirds in each chamber. Well, if it's still, if it's not presented again, there's a process to this under the constitution. So Mm -hmm. it, so the um, state Supreme court in Pennsylvania declared the joint resolution uh, non-binding. Therefore the governor's declaration of public health emergency was still in place. And Mm -hmm. at the next a statewide election, there was a referendum on whether to amend the Pennsylvania Constitution to permit uh, a a legislative resolution, a legislative Uh veto, and it passed. And so now Pennsylvania's state constitution has been, now has an additional authority for the legislature, the ability to (laughs) veto uh, in that that circumstance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it did. And uh, now the declaration is over. But most state statutes, no, most state constitutions right. don't allow for that. Right. The last, you know, on last count, mm-hmm. uh, it's about 10 of 50 right. states that either in the language of the state constitution or by interpretation of the state constitution by the state Supreme Court allows for a legislative veto. In all the other states, it's either not been addressed mm-hmm. Well, in all the other states, it's not expressly in the state constitution, and it and it perhaps has not been addressed by their state supreme court, uh, and so that is something that sits out there. What is mm-hmm. the what role does a what power does a state legislature have right. to terminate? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, in most states, it's probably that you need to pass a bill and send it to the governor. Mm-hmm. Here I am. <clears throat> Debating on whether or not I should have you sing that School of Rock song. You, no, I can end that debate. You should not. 
<laughs> also, I think we've gone far outside the realm of what that covers. Um, <laughs> a little, we've dug into the issues a little bit more. So, um, you are serving, as we we, we uh, mentioned earlier, oh, yeah. uh, as the reporter on the Uniform Law Commission. Can what is this commission exploring? Can you yeah. dig into that for us? Sure. So. Um... This is the first time I've done any work uh, with the Uniform Law Commission. So mm -hmm. the Uniform Law Commission, some of uh, the audience members may know really, really well. Uh, others of you may have heard of it, but not really sure what it does. <laughs> if you remember the Uniform Commercial Code, if you've heard of the Uniform Commercial Code, that's mm -hmm. what the Uniform Law Commission is probably most famous for. Mm -hmm. There are a number of uniform uh, state statutes. Uh, the Uniform, the uniform uh, Law Commission has been responsible for virtually all of those. Okay. It's a it's a uh, a nonprofit um, private organization mm -hmm. that has existed for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what eighteen something. Oh, okay. It's been around for a very long time, mm -hmm. and uh, it um, offers the opportunity for every state uh, through a whatever public process the state chooses to adopt to appoint as many commissioners to the commission as the, um, as the state would like. Mm -hmm. For every commissioner that's appointed, the state pays a fee to the Uniform Law Commission. Okay. Every state plus uh, the District of Columbia has appointed commissioners to the Uniform Law Commission has, and has done so for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. The commission then operates almost like uh, a model House of Representatives. Okay. But instead of addressing federal law, it's only addressing state law. Mm -hmm. The commission through uh, a series of leadership committees decides what projects to take on. And typically the projects are driven by what would make, how would um, American life benefit from greater uniformity of state law? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes that's economic, but not always. So the Uniform Commercial Code, um, everybody who took contracts in law school was exposed to that to some degree. That was really about how economic life could be mm -hmm. benefited by greater uniformity. But there are things like the Uniform um, Law on Anatomical Gifts. So um, that's less about economics and more about having a relatively uniform system for when someone wants to donate an organ upon their death. I was like, what is this? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought that meant, but. Yep. No, okay. you got it. You got it right. <laughs> um, there are a variety of, there's a uniform law with respect to how healthcare decisions are made. Mm -hmm. um, and when someone is incapable of making that decision for themselves. So mm -hmm. it's not always economic in nature. Right. Um, and so the Uniform Law Commission, in light of the pandemic, uh, considered whether or not it would make sense to have greater uniformity across the states with respect to. Uh, the clarity of uh, public health emergency powers and how they're divided between the executive branch and the legislative branch of a state, mm -hmm. as well as um, the general authority of the state to supersede, to preempt local law during a public health emergency. Mm -hmm. um, there were a number of other suggestions that were made, and the Uniform Law Commission is a is a um, is um, a relatively uh, careful organization. Mm -hmm. They don't take on a project lightly. So they actually right. spent, they created a committee 
just to study whether this was worthwhile. Wow. And to identify specifically, if we were to create a committee to draft such a, a law, a state law, um, what specific issues should it take up? Mm -hmm. That study committee uh, worked for a little more than a year, about a year and a half, and they presented a report to the leadership of the Uniform Law Commission, which then debates this at an annual meeting and eventually decided to form a drafting committee, uh -huh. but they didn't want to do a uniform law. They're doing a model law. So a model law generally allows for less uniformity. So it okay. creates a little more uniformity, but not absolute uniformity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it narrowed and it identified the charge, the specific issues that mm -hmm. the drafting committee would address. And they are, as I said, right what are the authorities the governor has, what powers does the legislature have as a check on that, and what mm -hmm. about preemption of local law? There were other issues that didn't make it through on that. Mm -hmm. um, so then when they formed the drafting committee, um, I was contacted about being the reporter, and the reporter's job, mm -hmm. uh, and it is, uh, it's pretty common for it to be a law professor, mm -hmm. the reporter's job is to bring some expertise to the committee. The committee is probably made up of 12 to 15 commissioners. Okay. The committee also then has ex officio uh, representation from the ABA. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then it also permits observers, anybody, pretty much anyone who is uh, willing to pay their way to the meeting is can sit in as an observer and can speak and, and um, is, is, can, um, make suggestions, criticisms, recommendations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, given that it's been largely virtual, not completely virtual, right, right. Um, it's quite a large group. You know, yeah. the initial group was probably close to 35 people okay. uh, with our 12 to 15 commissioners. Mm -hmm. The role of the reporter is to bring some expertise. So mm -hmm. uh, I try to identify from the charge what the legal issues are. I do some research and present a series of questions for the commission to answer, as well as some background law. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I do, um, as the name would suggest, I do, I am responsible for what, it's almost like being the secretary. I, okay. I am responsible for, the, for recording the answers that I get mm -hmm. back mm -hmm. and for drafting a bill. Yeah, okay. A proposed model state law that reflects what the com the commission the commissioners agreed to. Mm -hmm. I don't chair the meeting. There's a commissioner who chairs the meeting, and where there are votes necessary, that person takes care of that. I'm not the only mm -hmm. person recording it, so I mm -hmm. get help. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but I I draft the bill. I don't have a vote, which is an oh. interesting way to be part of it. I have influence mm -hmm. uh, right. by identifying the issues. I have influence mm -hmm. by making some discretionary calls about how to put into the form of a draft bill mm -hmm. uh, what I'm hearing from the commission. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been with this group for a year now. And so I feel like I know them well enough that sometimes I will mm -hmm. say, I don't have a vote, but here's my opinion anyway. Hey, if the observers can speak, can't I? Right. I don't doubt. I don't doubt that you speak up. If you... <laughs> um, and uh, so that's what happens. What It's a two-year process. Mm -hmm. At the end of the two-year process, at an annual meeting, the entire commission, and we're talking about something like 350 commissioners, okay. yeah. take a vote as to whether to adopt this 
um, the, the, the model law mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is proposed by the committee, whether to adopt it. If it's mm -hmm. adopted, uh, then, and by the way, the adoption votes are done by state. So state of Missouri, do you vote up or down on this? State of Hawaii, do you vote up or down as opposed oh. to each commissioner? Yeah, yeah. Um, and if it's adopted, then each, um, each state's body of commissioners has as a group agreed that they will use their best efforts to get the bill introduced, uh, to get the adopted model law introduced mm -hmm. as a bill mm -hmm. uh, in their state legislatures. Okay. Um, so it is in part a mock exercise, a uniform law by itself adopted by the Uniform Law Commission has no force of law. Right, yeah. But as a result of the existence of the commission and its process, there is an understanding that this will get introduced in, if not all 50 states, in the mm -hmm. majority of states, and an effort will be made in all 50 states to do so. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, so we talked about how, um, you know, it's we're addressing the issue of kind of putting a, I don't want to say a stop to, but, you know, some harnessing some authority from governors mm -hmm. um, who have overextended public health orders. But we also saw quite a few governors banning mask mandates during the acute phase of the pandemic. Is this a kind of political scenario that you guys, that the commission is addressing at all? Yes, a bit. Mm -hmm. um, there's two ways. Um, you're right, governors, some governors have taken very little action. Mm -hmm. Some governors have taken quite a lot of action. Some governors have taken action to say that others may not take action. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's walk through some of those scenarios. Your mm -hmm. the last part of your question was banning the use of mask mandates. So classically, yeah. that would be a governor saying, um, hey, cities and counties or school districts, mm -hmm. political subdivisions of our state, mm -hmm. you may not and then fill in the blank there. You right. are not authorized to order the wearing of masks or mm -hmm. to close businesses or to limit the number of people at a gathering or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. We saw this happen in Florida. We saw this happen in Texas. Mm -hmm. They weren't the only places where that has happened. Yeah. This is, by the way, not new to those who might, uh, those who are, are listening and you have experience in public health, local preemption is something that has come up quite a bit in public health law. So mm -hmm. maybe the state doesn't think that there should be any sort of law with respect to, let's say, lead levels in water or mm -hmm. whether or not plastic bags can be used free of charge at a grocery store. Right. So a charter city or a charter county might say, well, we have our own ability to make law. We do it through local ordinance. Now here's an ordinance. Mm -hmm. Now plastic bags are say in the city of San Francisco forbidden unless you're paying a fee for them. Yep. Right. So let's imagine that that happened in a, uh, and we'll just use a fictitious city and state, okay. right? That it happens in the city of Laclede in the state of Midwest. Okay. And the governor is opposed to that. Well, the, a governor might issue an order or the legislature might mm -hmm. pass a bill 
that forbids the local um, the local government from right. issuing those sorts of orders. This came up then during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we've had quite a bit of discussion about this at the commission level. Um, yeah. And it comes down to how do you address preemption authority? Mm -hmm. The reality is a school district, a city, a county is a creature of state law. It only exists because state law allows it to exist. Okay. Some exist as a matter of constitution of the constitution. Mm -hmm. So if you were to look into Missouri's constitution, you would find that it acknowledges the existence of charter counties and charter cities. Um, and so that means there has to be some system at the state level for recognizing cities and counties at the charter level. Mm -hmm. Their authority. Their authority, okay. yeah. So there are state statutes that do mm -hmm. so, and it sets a standard for what counts as a charter city or a charter county, a class mm -hmm. one, a class mm -hmm. two. I don't know a lot about state and local law. I've learned, I'm sorry, about local law, but I have sure. learned a bit about yeah. it. I, I imagine. <laughs> and, but it's it's enough that it is a, it is a creature of state law, which mm -hmm. means that state legislators and the state governor in keeping with the constitution has some discretion, has some legal authority to mm -hmm. change the authority that goes along with being a political subdivision. Right. Um, they, and so sometimes that can happen by order. Mm -hmm. and sometimes that can happen by uh, state statute. Mm -hmm. It often happens where there's conflict preemption. If a governor says, for example, let's imagine the opposite scenario. Let's imagine that the governor of the state of Midwest has issued a mask mandate. Mm -hmm. And the city of Laclede has an ordinance that specifically says there shall be no mask mandates. Right. In that case, state law supersedes. Okay. Because there's a direct conflict, state law would supersede. Mm -hmm. And for the duration of the mask order at the state level, the local ordinance would be overridden. When okay. the state mask mandate um, ends, well, then that local ordinance springs back into existence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what we've tried to do is to... Um, um, what the commission is in agreement about and what, we, what we're trying to do in terms of crafting language for the, for the model law mm -hmm. is to limit it to conflict preemption. So mm -hmm. where, a, a, where a governor has taken an affirmative step to protect public health, and if it conflicts with local law, then local law is superseded. Okay. But, taking action, but not taking action by just saying, I have not issued a mask mandate and you may not either. Right that that wouldn't be sufficient. Uh -huh. um, there's also, the commission has also been in favor of allowing states to, um, of not a, having a state action override local law where local law is more protective of public health okay. than the state law. Okay. So in other words, if the governor issues an order that says for the next week, there shall be a mask mandate. Mm-hmm. And the local ordinance says we have a mask mandate in place in perpetuity until the mayor or the city council or county executive terminates it. Right. Um, it's not as if then the local ordinance, which is more protective of public health, would suddenly become a seven day ordinance just because okay. the state order is seven days. They okay. would be doing the same thing for seven days mm -hmm. and, then and, and the ordinance would continue after right. that. If a state uh, 
order said mm -hmm. no more than, and let's just say, five people gathered in a space of a certain size. Mm -hmm. And the local ordinance said four mm -hmm. people. That is arguably more protective of public health. Right. And so um, then the four would still be in place in, okay. the, in the locality. Right. So that's that's kind of where we're trying to, where the commission uh, is trying to strike a balance. Mm -hmm. It's a complicated thing to write down. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, because what is considered to be more protective of public health is a bit squirmy. You know, it's, right. it's ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Some could argue it's more important for public health that school children be in school rather mm -hmm. than um, get having an education mm -hmm. uh, over a computer. Right. Uh, and that without social interaction for X period of time, it is harming their well-being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so... It, does that count as does therefore a local ordinance that says you, we you shall not close this school? Um, can that count as more protective of public? Yeah, this, I mean these are the things that we're trying to 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 vet with respect to language. Absolutely, I mean, and and I think it makes sense. I I like that idea of using the more protective one because you just you know in a state like Missouri, you have a rural area where it's not as populated as the cities, so naturally the risk is going to be higher um, in certain areas. So putting a blanket order over the state makes sense, but giving the local governments a little bit more of authority to govern as they can according to their population and the risk, I think also makes sense, right? Ab absolutely. In this mm -hmm. particular public health emergency, where you're talking about a communicable disease that can be transferred in the absence of having symptoms, mm -hmm. and it can be transferred through the air, mm -hmm. um, the density of population makes a big difference. Yeah. So a city, you'd see more spread in a city than you would see in a rural county. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, you're right, it makes sense. And our governor uh, relied on that rationale to issue very few right. uh, state orders. Mm -hmm. Now, that brings me to, to another point in your earlier question. Mm -hmm. What if a governor takes no action Let's let the local authorities rule exclusively right. and the governor takes no action. Um, and as a result, um, there is, let's, let's say some residents of the state are concerned that, hey, there should be at least a floor here, mm -hmm. that the governor should take some action and, um, and there's too little, you know, for example, we might say there's a rural county uh, outside of a major city in a Midwestern state that where if you, as long as nobody comes in and out of our County, you're right. We don't right. need anything, but yeah. you know, the interstate runs through it and people get mm -hmm. off at truck stops and we have, you know, you can't get to the city without going through here. And so actually it is an issue. Mm -hmm. So maybe the governor should step up and do something. Can you force the governor to do so? So the state statute does not do that. The model statute that we're looking at does not okay. do that. That would be left still to the to the, the discretion of a governor, and in some ways, that is also constitutional. Okay, you know, executive powers vest in a governor, mm -hmm. and in some states, it it that that it is there's there are no affirmative obligations. There's just an authority. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Also, some states have passed statutes that require the executive branch to take actions to affirmatively protect public health. And so the Uniform Law Commission likes to defer to those differences among the states. Mm -hmm. Um, It does leave a gap. It does leave a hole. It really is just talking about authority, not obligation. Mm -hmm. Um, And for those who've done any work in administrative law, it's n- it, it is challenging enough to use administrative law to try to um, set aside an administrative action that's affirmative in nature. It's virtually impossible to use administrative law to um, get a court to force mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. an administrative agency or a governor to do something instead of nothing. Right. So, you know, we sit like that. So what's Mm -hmm. the check on that? The check is really the electorate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, elected officials, including governors, respond when they believe when they see their popularity drop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take a petition to recall them. Right. I mean, I feel like this is a good plug for. Uh, election day is coming up pretty soon so use that power Um, also I feel like (laughs) wow you guys have a huge huge task in front of you Um, and it's such a complicated issue Um, I mean just from I feel like we have just scratched the surface Um, so I really appreciate you um, taking the time today to kind of dig into some of it I'm going to bring Amy back up hi hello again (laughs) So, on behalf of the Center for Health Law Studies, thank you for attending today's Health Law Live podcast. Find this interview and previous Health Law Live recordings wherever you find your podcasts. I love that we can say that. Um, (laughs) If you liked today's podcast topic, be sure to mark your calendars for March 3rd, 2023, when we will host our 35th annual Health Law Symposium entitled The Laws, Policies, and Politics of Public Health Emergency Powers. Be sure to check your email or our Twitter page at SLU underscore Health Law for information on other upcoming Center for Health Law Studies events. Thank you to SLU Law Summation's host, Jessica Sacconi, and to our guest, Professor Rob Gatter, for today's podcast. We will see you next time. All right. Thank you. I feel like we needed a breaking news um, banner <laughs> against that symposium. Uh, title, so. <laughs> this, that's the first time hearing. Very exciting. Thank you, there guys. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.